Chapter Thirteen of Marie Antoinette and Her Son by Louise Mulbach. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. Chapter Thirteen: The Night of Horror. Marie Antoinette slept. The fearful excitement of the past day and of the stormy evening, crowded with its events, had exhausted the powers of the queen, and she had fallen into that deep, dreamless sleep which sympathetic and gracious nature sometimes sends to those whom fate pursues with suffering and peril. Marie Antoinette slept. In the interior of the palace a deep calm reigned, and Lafayette had withdrawn from the court in order to sleep too. But below, upon this court, resolution kept her vigils, and glared with looks of hatred and vengeance to the dark walls behind which the queen was sleeping. The crown of France had for centuries sinned so much, and proved false so much, that the love of the people had at last been transformed into hate. The crown had so long sown the wind that it could not wonder if it had to reap the whirlwind. The crimes and innovations which Louis the Fourteenth and Louis the Fifteenth had sown upon the soil of France had created an abyss between the crown and the people out of which revolution must arise to avenge those crimes and sins of the past upon the present. The sins of the fathers had to be visited upon the children to the third and fourth generation. Marie Antoinette did not know it. She did not see the abyss which had opened between the crown and the people. The courtiers and flatterers had covered it with flowers, and with sounds of festivity the cries of a distressed people had been drowned. Now the flowers were torn away, the festive sounds had ceased, and Marie Antoinette saw the abyss between the crown and the people. She heard the curses, the raging cries of the exasperated men who had changed from weak, obedient subjects into threatening, domineering rebels. She looked with steady eye down into the abyss and saw the monster rise from the depths to destroy herself and her whole house. But she would not draw back. She would not yield. She would rather be dragged down and destroyed than meekly and miserably to make her way to the camp of her enemies, to take refuge with them. Better to die with the crown on her head than to live robbed of her crown in loneliness and in a subject condition. Thus thought Marie Antoinette, as at the close of that dreadful day she went to rest. This was her prayer as she sank upon her couch. Give me power, O oh God, to die as a queen, if I can no longer live as a queen, and strengthen my husband, that he may not only be a good man, but a king, too. With this prayer on her trembling lips she had fallen asleep. But when Champagne stole on tiptoe to the queen's bed to watch her mistress while she slept, Marie Antoinette opened her eyes again and spoke in her friendly way to her devoted servant. "'Go to bed, Champagne,' said she, "'and the second maid must lie down too. You all need rest after this evil day, and sleep is so refreshing. Go, Champagne. Good night.' Madame de Champagne had to obey, and stepped out into the antechamber where were the other two maids. "'The queen is asleep.' she said, and she has commanded us to go rest too. Shall we do so? The two women answered only with a shake of the head and a shrug of the shoulders. 
I know very well that we are agreed, said Madame de Champagne, reaching her hand to them. For us there must be no sleep to-night, for we must watch the Queen. Come, my friends, let us go into the antechamber. We shall find Mr. Vericourt, who will tell us what is going on outside. On tiptoe the three women stole out into the second antechamber, which was lighted only with a couple of glimmering wax tapers, and in its desolate disorder, with the confusion of chairs, divans, and tables, brought back sad recollections of the wild women who had on the day before pressed into this apartment in their desire to speak with the queen. Somebody had told them that this was the antechamber of the queen, and they had withdrawn in order to go to the antechamber of the king. But they now knew the way that led to the apartments of the queen. They knew now that if one turned to the left side of the palace, he would come at once into the apartments occupied by the royal family, and that the queen occupied the adjacent rooms, directly behind the hall of the Swiss guard. Madame de Champagne thought of this, as she cast her glance over this antechamber which adjoined the Swiss hall, and this thought filled her with horror. Vericourt had not yet come in. Nothing disturbed the silence around her except the dreadful shouting and singing outside of the palace. "'Let us go back into the waiting-room,' whispered her companions. "'It is too gloomy here. Only hear how they shout and laugh. Oh, God, it is a fretful night!' "'Yes, a fretful night,' sighed Madame de Champagne. "'And the day that follows it may be yet more fearful. "'But we must not lose our courage. "'All depends upon our having decision, "'upon our defying danger and defending our mistress. "'And see, there comes Mr. Vericourt.' "'She continued earnestly as the door quickly opened, "'and an officer of the Swiss Guard came in with great haste. "'Tell us, my friend, what news do you bring us?' "'Bad news,' sighed Vericourt. "'The crowd is increasing every moment. "'New columns have arrived from Paris, "'and not only the common people, "'but the speakers and agitators are here. "'Everywhere are groups listening to the dreadful speeches "'which urge on to regicide and revolution. "'It is a dreadful, horrible night. "'Treachery, hatred, wickedness around the palace, "'and cowardice and desertion pass out from the palace to them "'and open the doors.' Many of the royal soldiers have made common cause with the people, and walk arm in arm with them around the square. "'And what do these dreadful men want?' asked Champagne. "'Why do they encamp around the palace? What is their object?' Mr. Vericourt sadly bowed his head, and a loud sigh came from his courageous breast. "'They want what they shall never have while I am alive,' he then said, with a decided look. I have sworn fidelity to the king and queen, and I shall keep it to death. My duty calls me, for the hour of changing guards is near, and my post is below at the great staircase which leads up here. We shall meet at daylight, if I am then alive. But till then we shall do our duty. I shall guard the grand staircase. Do you guard the sleeping room of the queen? Yes, we will do our duty answered Madame de Champagne, extending her hand to him. We will watch over those to whom we have devoted ourselves, and to whom we have vowed fidelity. No one shall pass into the chamber of the queen while we are alive, shall there? Never, replied both of the women with courageous decision. 
"'And no one shall ascend the great staircase so long as I live,' said Vericourt. "'Adieu now, ladies, and listen carefully to every sound. "'If a voice calls to you, it is time. "'Waken the queen and save her, for danger will then be right upon her. "'Hark, it is striking three. "'That is the hour of changing guard. "'Farewell.' He went quickly to the door, but there he stood and turned once more around. His glance encountered that of his friend, and Madame de Champagne understood its silent language well, for she hastened to him. "'You have something to say to me?' "'Yes,' he whispered softly. "'I have a presentiment that I shall not survive the horrors of this night. I have one whom I love, who, as you know, is betrothed to me. If I fall in the service of the king, I ask you to see my Cecilia, and tell her that I died with her name upon my lips. Tell her not to weep for me, but at the same time not to forget me. Farewell. He hurriedly opened the door and hastened away. Madame de Champagne repressed the tears which would fill her eyes, and turned to the two maids. Now, said she with decisive tones, let us return to the waiting-room and watch the door of the queen's chamber. With a firm step she walked on, and the ladies followed. Without any noise they entered the little hall, where in the morning those ladies of the court used to gather who had the right to be present while the queen dressed herself. Madame de Champagne locked the door through which they had entered, behind her, drew out the key, and hid it in her pocket. "'No one will enter here with my will,' she said. Now we will place chairs before the door of the sleeping-room and sit there. We shall then have erected a barricade before our queen, a wall which will be as strong as any other, for there be three courageous hearts within it. They sat down upon the chairs, whose high backs leaned against the door of the queen's room, and taking one another's hands began their hollowed watch. All was still and desolate around them, no one of the women could break the silence with a word or remark. With dumb lips, with the open eyes, the three watchers sat and hearkened to the sounds of the night. At times, when the roaring without was uncommonly loud and wild, they pressed one another's hands and spoke to one another in looks. But when the sounds died away, they turned their eyes once more to the windows and listened. Slowly, dreadfully slowly moved the fingers of the great clock above on the chimney. Madame de Champagne often fixed her gaze upon it, and it seemed to her as if time must have ceased to go on, for it appeared to be an eternity since Vericourt had taken leave of her. And yet, the longer fingers on the dial had not indicated the fourth hour after midnight. But the pendulum still continued its regular, even swinging. The time went forward, only every moment made the horror, the fear of unknown danger, seem like an eternity. At last, slowly, with calm stroke, the hour began to strike four o'clock, and amid the dreadful sounds outside the palace the women could recognize the deep tones of the great clock on the Swiss hall. Four o'clock! One solitary dreadful hour is past. Three hours more! three eternities before daylight comes. But hark! What new, fearful noise without! That is no more the sound of singing and shouting and crying. That is the battle cry. That is the rattle and clatter of muskets. 
the three women sprang up moved as if by one thought animated by one purpose they moved the chairs back from the door ready as soon as danger should approach to go into the chamber of the queen and awaken her champagne then slid across the room to the door of the antechamber which she had looked before she laid her ear to the keyhole and listened all was still and quiet in the next room no one was in the antechamber there was no immediate danger near for vericourt's voice had not yet uttered the cry of warning but more fearful grew the noise outside the crackle of musketry was more noticeable and every now and then there seemed to be heavy strokes as if directed against the palace sounding as if the people were attempting to force the iron gate of the front court i must know what is going on whispered champagne and with cool decision she put the key into the door turned it entered the antechamber and flew to the window where there was a view of the whole court and a fearful sight met her there the crowd had broken the gate pressed into the court and was surging in great masses towards the palace doors here and there torches threw their glare over these masses disclosing men with angry gestures and women with streaming hair swinging their arms savagely and seeming like a picture of hell not to be surpassed in horror even by the phantasms of dante women changed to furies and bacchanalians roaring and shouting in their murderous desires men like bloodthirsty tigers preparing to spring upon their prey and give it the death-stroke swinging pikes and guns which gleamed horribly in the glare of the torches arms and fists bearing threatening daggers and knives all this was pressing on upon the palace all these clenched fists would soon be engaged in hammering upon the walls which separated the king and queen from the people the executioner from his victim all at once there rang out a fearful thundering cry which made the windows rattle and called forth a terrible echo above in the deserted hall for through all these shrieks and howls there resounded now a piercing cry such as only the greatest pain or the most instant need can extort from human lips that was a death cry whispered madame de champagne trembling and drawing back from the window they have certainly killed the swiss guards who are keeping the door they will now pour into the palace oh god what will become of vericourt i must know what is going on she flew through the antechamber and opened the door of the swiss hall it was empty but outside of it could be heard a confused mixed mass of sounds cries and the trampling as of hundreds and hundreds of men coming on nearer and nearer came the sound more distinct every moment all at once the door was flung open on the other side of the swiss hall the door which led out and vericourt appeared in it pushed backward by the raging howling mass he still sought to resist the oncoming tramp of these savage men and with a movement like lightning putting his weapon across the door he was able for one minute to hold the place against the tide just so long as the arms which held the weapon had in them the pulse of life vericourt looked like a dying man his uniform was torn and cut his face deathly pale and on one side disfigured by the blood which was streaming down from a broad wound in his forehead it is time it is time he cried with a loud tremulous voice 
and as he saw for an instant the face of Champagne at the opposite door, a flash of joy passed over his face. Save the queen! They will murder her! Madame de Champagne hastily closed the door, drew the great bolt, and then sprang through the antechamber into the waiting room, and bolted its door too. Then, after she had done that, after she had raised this double wall between the sleeping queen and the raging mob, she sank upon her knees like one who was utterly crushed, and raised her folded hands to heaven. "'Have mercy on his soul, O God! Take him graciously to heaven!' whispered she with trembling lips. "'For whom are you praying?' asked the two women in low voices, hurrying up to her. "'Who is dead?' "'Mr. Vericourt,' answered Champagne with a sigh. I heard his death cry as I was bolting the door of the antechamber. But we cannot stop to weep and lament. We must save the queen. And she sprang up from her knees, flew through the room, and opened the door leading to the queen's chamber. At that moment a fearful crash was heard, then a loud shout of triumph in the outer antechamber. The queen! We want the heart of the queen! They have broken down the door of the antechamber. They are in the waiting room whispered Champagne. There is no time to be lost. Come, friends, come! And she hastened to the bed of the queen, who was still lying in that heavy, unrefreshing sleep which usually follows exhaustion and intense excitement. Your Majesty! Your Majesty, wake! What is it, Champagne? asked Marie Antoinette, opening her eyes and hastily sitting up in bed. Why do you waken me? What has happened? The fearful sounds without, the crashing of the door of the little waiting-room, gave answer. The rough, hard voices of the exasperated women, separated now from the queen by only one thin door, quickly told all that had happened. Marie Antoinette sprang from her bed. "'Dress me, quick, quick!' "'Impossible! There is no time! Only hear how the gunstocks beat against the door! They will break it down, and then your majesty is lost!' the clothes on without stopping to fasten them. Now fly, your majesty, fly! Through the side door, through the Olier de Boeuf! Madame de Champagne went in advance. The two women supported the queen and carried her loose clothes, and then flew on through the still and deserted corridors to the sleeping-room of the king. It was empty. No one was there. Oh, God, Champagne, where is the king? I must go to him. My place is by his side. Where is the king? Here I am, Marie, here, cried the king, who just then entered and saw the eager, anxious face of his wife. I hurried to save our most costly possessions. He laid the dauphin, only half awake, and lying on his breast, in the arms which Marie Antoinette extended to him, and then led her little daughter to her, who had been brought in by Madame Trouzel, now said the king calmly now that i have collected my dearest treasures i will go and see what is going on but marie antoinette held him back there is destruction treachery and murder outside crime may break in here and overwhelm us but we ought not to go out and seek it well said the king we will remain here and await what comes and turning to his valet, who was then entering, Louis continued, "'Bring me my chocolate. 
I want to take advantage of the time to breakfast, for I am hungry. Sire, now? Shall we breakfast now? asked the queen, amazed. Why not? answered Louis calmly. If the body is strengthened, we will look at everything more composedly and confidently. You must take breakfast too, Marie, for who knows whether we shall find time for some hours after this. I, oh, I need no breakfast, cried Marie Antoinette, and as she saw Louis eagerly taking a cup of chocolate from the hands of a valet and was going to enjoy it, she turned away to repress the tears of anger and pain which in spite of herself pressed into her eyes. "'Mamma Queen,' cried the Dauphine, who was yet in her arms, "'I should like my breakfast, too. My chocolate. I should like my chocolate, too.' The Queen compelled herself to smile, carried the child to its father, and softly set him down on the King's knee. "'Sire,' said she, Will the king of France teach his son to take breakfast while revolution is thundering without, and breaking down with treasonable hands the doors of the royal palace? Champagne, come here. Help me arrange my toilet. I want to prepare myself to give audience to revolution. And withdrawing to a corner of the room, the queen finished her toilet, for which her women fortunately had in their flight brought the materials. While the queen was dressing and the king breakfasting with the children, the cabinet of the king began to fill. All Louis's faithful servants, then the ministers and some of the deputies, had hurried to the palace to be at the side of the king and queen at the hour of danger. Even one of them brought new tidings of horror. St. Priest told how he, entering the Swiss room, at the door leading into the antechamber of the queen, had seen the body of Vericourt covered with wounds. The Duc de Lioncourt had seen a dreadful man, of gigantic size, with heavy beard, the arms of his blouse rolled up high, and bearing a heavy hatchet-knife in his hand, springing upon the person of the faithful Swiss, in order to sever his head from his body. The Count de Bourgenay had seen the corpse of the Swiss officer, Baron de Duchutes, who guarded the iron gate, and whom the people murdered as they entered. The Marquis de Crothe told of the heroism with which another Swiss, Maimandre of Sainte Marie, had defended the door between the suites of the king and queen and had gained time to draw the bolt and barricade the door. And during all these reports, and while the cabinet was filling more and more with pale men and women, the king went composedly on dispatching his breakfast. The queen, who had long before completed her toilet, now went up to him, and with gentle, tremulous voice conjured him to declare what should be done, to come at last out of this silence, and to speak and act worthy of a king. Louis shrugged his shoulders and set the replenished cup, which he was just lifting to his mouth, on the silver waiter. At once the queen beckoned to the valet, Hugh, to come up. "'Sir,' she said commandingly, "'take these things out.' The king has finished his breakfast. Louis sighed, and with his eye followed the valet, who was carrying the breakfast into the guard-robe. Now, sire, whispered Marie Antoinette, show yourself a king. My love, replied the king quietly, it is very hard to show myself a king, when the people do not choose to regard me as one. 
only hear that shouting and yelling, and then tell me what I can do as king to bring these madmen to peace and reason. Sire, raise your voice as king. Tell them that you will avenge the crimes of this knight. Take the sword in your hand and defend the throne of your fathers and the throne of your son. And then you will see these rebels retire, and you will collect around you men who will be animated with fresh courage, and who will take new fire from your example. O oh, sire, disregard now the pleadings of your noble, gentle heart. Show yourself firm and decided. Have no leniency for traitors and rebels. Tell me what I should do, murmured the king with a sigh. Marie Antoinette stooped down to his ear. Sire, whispered she, send at once to Vincennes and to the other neighboring places. Order the troops to come hither, collect an army, put yourself at its head. March on Paris, declare war on the rebellious capital, and you will march as conqueror into your recaptured city. Oh, only no yielding, no submission. Only give the order, sire, say that you will do so, and I will summon one of my faithful ones to give him orders to hasten on to Vincennes. And while the queen whispered eagerly to the king, her flashing glance spread across to Toulon, who in the tumult, had found means to come in, and now looked straight at the queen. Now, as her glance came to him as an unspoken command, he made his way irresistibly forward through the crowd of courtiers, ministers, and ladies, and now stood directly behind the queen. "'Has your majesty orders for me?' he asked softly. She looked anxiously at the king, waiting for an answer, an order. But the king was dumb. In order not to answer his wife, he drew the dauphin closer to him and caressed him. "'Has your majesty commands for me?' asked Toulon once more. Marie Antoinette turned to him, her eyes suffused with tears, and let Toulon see her face darkened with grief and despair. "'No,' she whispered. "'I have only to obey. I have no commands to give.' Lafayette was now heard in the courtier. General Lafayette is coming. The queen advanced with hasty steps towards the entering general. Sir, she cried, is this the peace and security that you promised us, and for which you pledged your word? Hear that shouting without, and see us as if beleaguered here, and then tell me how it agrees with the assurances which you made to me. Madame? I have myself been deceived, answered Lafayette. The most sacred promises were made to me. All my requests and propositions were yielded to. I succeeded in pacifying the crowd, and I really believed and hoped that they would continue quiet, that— Sir, interrupted the queen impatiently, whom do you mean by they? Of whom are you speaking in such tones of respect? Madame, I am speaking of the people— with whom I came to an understanding, and who promised me to keep the peace, and to respect the slumbers of your majesty. "'You are not speaking of the people, but of rebels, the agitators,' cried Marie Antoinette with flashing eyes. "'You speak of high traitors, who break violently into the palace of the king, of murderers who have destroyed two of our faithful subjects. Sir, it is of such crime that you speak with respect.' It is with such a rabble that you have dealt, instead of ordering your soldiers to cut them down. Madame, 
said Lafayette, turning pale. Had I attempted to do that, your majesty would not have found refuge in this chamber. For the anger of the mob is like the lightning and thunder of the tempest. It heeds neither door nor bolt, and if it has once broken loose, nothing can restrain or stop it. Oh! <laughs> cried the queen with a mocking laugh. It is plain that Monsieur Lafayette has been pursuing his studies in America, at the University of Revolutions. He speaks of the people with a deference, as if it were another majesty to bow to. And in that Lafayette is right, said the king, rising and approaching them. Hear the yell, madame. It sounds like the roaring of lions. And you know, Marie, that the lion is called the king of the beast. Tell us, general, what does the lion want, and what does his roaring mean? Sire, the enemies of the royal family, the agitators and rebels, who have within these last hours come from Paris, have urged on the people afresh and kindled them with senseless calumnies. They have persuaded the people that your majesty has summoned hither the regiments from all the neighboring stations, that you are collecting an army to put yourself at its head and march against Paris. Louis cast a significant look at his wife, which was answered with a proud toss of her head. I have sought in vain, continued Lafayette, to make the poor, misguided men conscious of the impossibility of such a plan. Yet, sir, broke in Marie Antoinette fiercely, the execution of this plan would have saved the crown from dishonor and humiliation. Only, madame, that is exactly the execution of it which is impossible, answered Lafayette, gently bowing. If you could give wings to the soldiers of the various garrisons away from here, the plan might be good, and the army might save the country. But, as unfortunately this cannot be, we must think of other means of help, for your majesty hears the danger knocking now at the door, and we must do with pacificatory measures what we cannot do with force. How will you use pacificatory measures, sir? asked Marie Antoinette angrily. Lafayette cast upon her a sad, pained look, and turned to the king. "'Sire,' said he, with loud, solemn voice, "'Sire, the people are frightfully carried away. Stimulating speeches have driven them to despair and to madness. It is only with difficulty that we have succeeded in keeping the mob out of the palace and closing the doors again. "'Paris shall be laid in ashes,' is the horrible cry which drives all these hearts to rage, and to which they give unconditional belief. "'I will show myself to the people,' said Louis. "'I will tell them that they have been deceived. I will give them my royal word that I have no hostile designs whatever against Paris.' General Lafayette sighed and dropped his head heavily upon his breast. "'Do you counsel me not to do this?' asked the king timidly. "'Sire,' answered the general with a shrug, "'the people are now in such an excited, unreasonable state "'that my words will no longer be sufficient to satisfy them. "'Your majesty might assure them ever so solemnly "'that you entertain no hostile intentions whatever against Paris, "'and that you will not call outside help to your assistance, "'and the exasperated people would mistrust your assurances.' for in all their rage the people have a distinct consciousness of the crimes they are engaging in, committing and creating this rebellion against the crown, and they know that it were not human, 
that it were divine for your majesty to forgive such crimes, and therefore they would not credit such forgiveness. How well General Lafayette knows how to interpret the thoughts of this fanatical rabble, whom he calls the people, ejaculated the queen with a scornful laugh. At this instant a loud thundering cry was heard below, and thousands upon thousands of voices shouted, The king! We want to see the king! Louis's face lighted up. With quick step he hurried to the window and raised it. The people did not see him at once, but the king saw. He saw the immense square in front of the palace, which had been devoted to the rich equipages of the nobility, occupied by the humbler classes, the troops of his staff marching up in their galley uniforms. He saw it filled with the dense mass of men whom Lafayette had called the people, whom the queen had termed a riotous rabble, surging up and down, head pressed to head, here and there faces distorted with rage, eyes blazing, fists clenched, arms bare, and pikes glistening in the morning light, while a great roar, like that which comes from the sea in a tempest, filled the air. "'You are right, Lafayette,' said the king, who looked calmly at this black sea of human life. "'You are right. This is the people. There are here probably twenty thousand men, and heaven defend me from regarding all as criminals and rabble. I believe—' A tremendous shout now filled the air. The king had been seen. Someone had noticed him at the open window, and now all heads and all looks were directed to this window, and twenty thousand voices cried, Long live the king! Long live the king! Louis turned with a proud, happy look to the gentlemen and ministers who stood near him, Marie Antoinette having withdrawn to the farthest corner of the room, where, throwing her arms around both of the children and drawing them to her bosom, she had sunk into a chair. "'What do you say now, gentlemen?' asked the king. "'Did they not want to make me believe that my good people hate their king and wish him ill? But when I show myself to them, hear how they shout to greet me!' "'To Paris!' was now the roar of the mob below. We want the king should go to Paris. What do they say? What do they want? asked Louis, turning to Lafayette, who now stood close beside him. Sire, they are shouting their wishes to you that you and the royal family should go to Paris. And you, General, what do you say? asked the king. Sire, I have taken the liberty already to say that words and promises are of no more avail to quiet this raving, maddening people, and to make them believe that you will have no hostile designs against Paris. But if I go to Paris and reside there for a time, it is your opinion, as I understand it, that the people would be convinced that I have no evil intentions against the city, that I should not undertake to destroy the city in which I might live. That is your meaning, is it not? Yes, sire, that is what I wanted to say. To Paris! To Paris! thundered up from below. The king shall go to Paris! Louis withdrew from the window and joined the circle of his ministers, who, with their pale faces, surrounded him. Gentlemen, said the king, you are my counsellors. Well, give me your counsel. Tell me now what I should do to restore peace and quiet. 
but no one replied. Perplexed and confused, they looked down to the ground, and only Necker found courage to answer the king after a long pause. Sire, he said, it is a question that might be considered for days which your majesty has submitted to us, and on its answer depends, perhaps, the whole fate of the monarchy. But, as you wish to know the opinions of your ministers, I will venture to give mine, that it would be the safest and most expedient course for your majesty to comply with the wishes of the people, and go to Paris. I suppose so, whispered the king, dropping his head. To Paris, cried the queen, raising her head. It is impossible. You cannot be in earnest in being willing to go of your own accord down into the abyss of revolution in order to be destroyed there. To Paris! To Paris! was the thundering cry from below, as if the words of the queen had awakened a fearful, thousand-voiced echo. To Paris! The king and the queen shall go to Paris! And never come from there, cried the queen, with bursting tears. Speak, Lafayette, cried the king. What do you think? Sire, I think that there is only one way to restore peace and to quiet the people, and that is for your majesty to go to-day with the royal family to Paris. It is my view, too, said Louis calmly. Then go, Lafayette. Tell the people that the king and queen, together with the Dauphine and the princess, will journey to-day to Paris. The simple and easily spoken words had two very different effects in the cabinet on those who heard them. Some faces lightened up with joy, some grew pale with alarm. There were sighs of despair and cries of fresh hope. Everyone felt that this was a crisis in the fate of the royal family, some thinking that it would bring disaster, others deliverance. The queen alone put on now a grave, decided look. A lofty pride lighted up her high brow, and with an almost joyful expression she looked at her husband, who had been induced to do something, at least to take a decisive step. "'The king has spoken,' she said amid the profoundest silence, "'and it becomes us to obey the will of the king.' and to be subject to it. Madame de Champagne, make all the preparations for my departure, and do it in view of a long stay in Paris. Now, Lafayette, asked the king, as the general still delayed in the room, why do you not hasten to announce my will to the people? Sire, answered Lafayette solemnly, there are moments when a people can only be pacified by the voice either of God or of its king, and where every other human voice is overwhelmed by the thunder of the storm. "'And you think that this is such a moment?' asked the king. "'You think that I ought myself to announce to the people what I mean to do?' Lafayette bowed and pointed to the window, which shook even then with a threatening cry. "'The king! We will see the king! He shall go to Paris! The king! The king!' Louis listened a while in thoughtful silence to this thundering shout, which was at once so full of majesty and horror. Then he quickly raised his head. "'I will follow your advice, General,' said he calmly. 
I will announce my decision to the people. Give me your hand, madame. We shall go to the balcony room. And you, gentlemen, follow me. The queen took the hand of her husband without a word, and gave the other to the little dauphine, who timidly clung to her, while her daughter Teresa quietly and composedly walked near them. End of chapter 13 Recording by Maggie Travers in Murfreesboro, Tennessee